And here's what I want to ask you. What is holding you back? What is the thing that's holding you back from going after your dreams and from finding meaningful work you love? Aren't you ready to wake up to the possibilities that are in your life and go after the things you've dreamt of? It's time for you to feel alive again, lit up, and for you to know that you're deserving and you are worthy for the future that's waiting for you. I want you to feel fulfilled and find abundance in your life. I think it's time and I'm ready to help you get started. Now I'm your host, Kristen, of Building a Life You Love. And each week we're going to talk to people that have redefined their lives and are going after their dreams. And we want to help you live your best life, both personally and professionally. So let's get started. On today's episode, I am going to talk to a female pastor about going after her calling to become pastor in midlife. And we're going to talk about juggling a family with serving in ministry. We are going to talk about all of the hope and love and the message of you know Jesus and what it really means to walk in faith. And we're going to talk about some really great strategies that we can all put in place to try to live, you know, be happy and joyful in our lives. I just think it's a really great conversation and I think you'll get a lot out of it, whether you walk in faith and you're a Christian or not. I think it's just a really meaningful conversation and I think it gets to the heart of the message and the story of Jesus and what it means to love yourself and your neighbor and the Lord. Hi, today on the show, I want to welcome Pastor Stephanie Late, who is a pastor of Cross and Crown Lutheran Church. She is an author and speaker. Her book is Beckoned, Hearing God's Call to Deeper Faith. And prior to becoming a pastor, she was a comparative religions professor. I'd like to welcome her to the show today. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Kristen. Great to be here. Wonderful. Well, the first thing I'd love to do is for you to share a little bit about your journey and your backstory with our listeners. Well, I am from Southern California, and I have always been fascinated with religious studies. Uh, I was not raised in any kind of religion. Uh, I was intentionally actually kept from religion because my mother, who raised me basically as a single mother, she had been very badly damaged by a harmful expression of religion uh, in the Bible Belt in the 1940s. And she was just so damaged by it. She became a clinical psychologist as a profession, and she believed that it was psychologically harmful for people to grow up, particularly as Christians. So she exposed me to some of the world's religions and took me to a lot of cultural fairs and had people from different parts of the world over to her house talk about different religions, but she really wanted me to stay away from Christianity. But her... um, my, my grandparents, actually, they were deeply devout Christians and very, very loving people. So partly because of their influence and also partly because of how I'm wired, I guess, I always just really wanted to explore religion and, and particularly Christianity. It, it was captivating to me. So um, when I was a teenager, uh, she allowed me to go forth and explore. <laughs> and I was baptized and, and found a church and, and loved it. And it felt like my world just opened up. So from there, I majored in religious studies, and I went on to eventually become a professor of comparative religions. And then I found my way into seminary and becoming a pastor. I am married also to my high school sweetheart, who is a a religious studies and philosophy professor himself. And we have two almost grown children and two dogs. And I serve at a church in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Fantastic. Wow. That is definitely quite the journey, you know, from a, (laughs) from a home growing up that's like you said, was sort of against the idea of Christianity to becoming a pastor. But I think that's such an inspiring story. I would love it if you could tell us when you first went into your religious studies career, I guess, I think before that we start recording, you talked about you had considered maybe feeling this call or interest in being a pastor or having, being in ministry but that at the time you felt that wasn't something that you could move into. Did you want to tell us a little bit about that part of the story and how you finally felt you were able to to make that transition in the last six Mm -hmm. years? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, when I was 15, I was baptized and I was in a very loving church. And the way that Christianity was presented to me was the polar opposite from how it was presented to my mother. 
it was not all about shame and guilt and fear and damnation and, you know, woundedness. <laughs> so it was in a very positive way. When I was 17, I felt very strongly called to go into ministry. And, you know, sometimes people ask, how do you know that you're called? I can't describe it. It's kind of like a feeling of falling in love. Like you can't really point to love, but you can absolutely undeniably sense it. And so that was how this call felt. It did not feel like something I could point to or prove to anybody, but I could absolutely undeniably hear that this was God telling me to do this. I was in a denomination at the time. I was Presbyterian at the time, which supported women going into ministry. And so about 50% of the pastors in that denomination were female, even in the 1980s when I was a teenager. And so my pastor's encouraged me and I was sent to leadership development camps and all kinds of training, even as a teenager. So I went further into school, into college, studying comparative religions, thinking I was going to go to seminary to be a pastor. And I wanted to explore the Episcopal denomination, which is a beautiful denomination. But I happened to have one particular priest who told me that I would never become a senior or solo pastor because I'm female. His bishop at the time actually was female, so it's kind of strange that he said that, but nevertheless, that's what he said. And because I was young, I was 20 when this happened, I felt so derailed. People believe that the clergy have some special in with God, and we don't. You know, we're people doing what people do, but that's how people that are not clergy often perceive clergy. And so when this priest told me I couldn't really fully be a pastor, and like my boyfriend, who didn't want to be a pastor could because he was male, but I couldn't because I was female. It kind of, it felt like God changed his mind. You know, it felt like the priest was speaking from the mouth of God. Now I would have a very different opinion on that. But when I was 20 and my priest told me that, I just kind of said, wow, I guess that's the truth of things. Now I had had hundreds of people encouraging me, not one person from my family to friends, to my boyfriend, to my church, Not one person discouraged me or told me that as a female, I was second class in any way. One human being put doubt in in my mind. And and that just, to me, shows me the power of clergy and how we need to be so careful what we tell people because people subconsciously take it as more than just one person's opinion. So I started really backing away from ministry and the thought of ministry uh, because there's no... I was not going to go into something that would consider me a second class person. I just, that just repulsed me, the idea of that. So I went into academia because, you know, academia is used to women being there. And so there wasn't a sense that I couldn't do it from anybody. And I loved teaching. I really did. For many years, I had a, a great time teaching, but it always felt different than how my husband experienced teaching. He always knew it was a good fit. It was perfect for him. It was, he loved it. He loves it still. He's never questioned it. To me, it always felt like something was a little bit off. And so when I was almost 40, uh, the sense of call into ministry that had kind of gone underground for many years, because I spent I spent time discovering the Catholic Church, which I really love. And I wrote about that a lot in my book, Beckons. The ritual, the sacramental understanding, the liturgy, it opened up whole new understandings in my mind of what church is and what worship is. So, of course, women cannot be in ministry in that way in the Catholic Church. So the whole sense of call just went underground, kind of dormant. Later on, for other reasons, we started exploring the Lutheran Church, which in its largest branch, does allow women in ministry. And the sense of call came booming back into my heart 20 years later. And I was like, wait, God, we settled this. You know, we had said, or actually I had said, but God, weren't you along my, you know, didn't you agree with me that academia was what I should do? But this sense of call was just as loud as it had ever been. And, uh, I did a whole lot of research, a whole lot of prayer, and then I discovered that I can't run from, you know, God's call in my life. And so I went to see. There's two things I want to talk about there that you brought up. The first was that I think it's Tim Grawl talks about um, often we work in shadow careers. So Mm -hmm. they're kind of like a parallel or right next to the career maybe we're really meant to step into. And I think that's such a lovely idea because, you know, for you, it was you knew that it was this faith and this religion and all that came with that. It's just you, because of this comment, right from this priest, you, you thought, "Mm, maybe I need to kind of Mm -hmm. find something nearby it. So I think that's really lovely that 
you know, once again, I see that woven right there and how you finally did get back to the, you know, the real career, the career that you felt called to come into. So I think that's great. Second thing is that you brought up is how powerful words really are, yeah. you know, and like you said, whether someone's complimenting us or saying something we're good at, or whether they're telling us something that from their perspective, we're not good at, or isn't meant for us, or they're afraid for us to go into something. I think, you know, that's a really good reminder to all of us, how powerful the messages we put in the world, you know, for pastors, but just for all of us as a parent, as a spouse, as someone, you know, telling our coworkers things. So I think that's really, you know, a good point to remind people that, you know, we do have the power to lift people up and we have the power to encourage them into the things they're wanting to walk into, but we can also put doubt in their minds. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit though, how did you finally overcome that doubt that the priest had put in your mind? I know it was 20 years later, but let's be honest, many of us live with this doubt about ourselves or am I worthy? Am I good enough? for our whole lives, or it takes us a really long time to overcome some of these things. So what did that process look like for you as far as overcoming the limiting beliefs or the belief that you couldn't go into that in the way you wanted to? Many things contributed. Uh, One thing was when I was thinking, should I be a pastor? Should I go to seminary? And I wanted a kind of clarity and a kind of certainty that I never was going to get. There was never going to be a burning bush in front of me like Moses got. You know, I never had that kind of clarity. I never had an email from Jesus saying, okay, Stephanie, now, you know. So one thing that helped was somebody said to me, well, instead of looking forward into your life, imagine that you're 100 years old on your deathbed, look backward in your life. If you, from that vantage point, if you had never become a pastor, is there something wrong with that story? And I said, absolutely. It's just something's wrong. I was not following what I was supposed to do. And she goes, okay, well, then look back. What if you never became a chef? What if you never became a preschool teacher? What if you never became an accountant? And I'm like, yeah, that's, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm not supposed to do that. So I could see much more looking back, the sense of regret, even though I was just imagining it, that this was something that my life was going to be incomplete if I didn't do it. Another thing that really helped was, in addition to what this priest said about not believing that I could do this, there also was another thing that stopped me from going into ministry. And it related to the fact that my mom, as I said, was a psychologist and she dealt with people in pain. And she would come home and tell me not details of her patients, but general situations about people that were depressed or suicidal or had some kind of, you know, schizophrenia or things going on with them that she was helping them through. And I felt really intimidated by that idea. And I knew that clergy in some ways, not as intensely as psychologists do, but in some ways, clergy walk with people in pain. And I just didn't know if I could do that. And so I believed that doing all the academic things of teaching, that that was safer. It was at a distance, you know, and I could, I didn't need to get involved with people very much. I could just talk about the ideas of religion. And it's true. Religion's so much neater and cleaner and not messy in a classroom <laughs> when you're dealing with ideas than in a congregation when you're dealing with people. Yeah. But what really helped me get past that was some of the training that we in our denomination, we need to go through in seminary, which is called clinical pastoral education or abbreviated CPE, where we are placed for a time in a hospital or a nursing home or some kind of a place where people are sick and dying, given some training. But more than that, we're told, go, (laughs) you know, kind of, you learn to swim by being thrown in the deep end. And so I walked into hospital rooms feeling totally unprepared because in the classroom, I had my lecture notes and I kind of had a sense of control over my classroom. I knew generally what would come up. But I would walk in hospital rooms not knowing what I was going to face because we weren't told as chaplains what what was going on in the rooms very much. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I didn't do a lot of prep work, like I couldn't. Right. So the only prep I could do is just to pray, God, walk with me into that room, please. And there's one savior of the world, and that's you, not me. So this is your child, not mine. But give me the words to say. Give me a listening ear. Give me a heart for this person. And what I found was that God showed up every single time, 
if I wasn't a believer before my time in the hospital, I was then because I encountered tragedy upon tragedy and grief upon grief and trauma upon trauma, where miraculously the spirit was there to be the main player in the room. And when I went through that experience, I thought, okay, I can do this because I'm not the one in charge. This isn't my church. This is God's church. This isn't, these aren't my people. These are God's people. And I'm a servant that's going to be utilized, but God, you're doing the heavy lifting here. And that gave me incredible confidence to just play my part. Yeah. So before you went into seminary, had you already come to the point where you were able to let go of those you know, what the past or the priest had said to you, or did it, was it really walking through that? Like you said that before you, you really changed your mindset about that, you know, you really could not only go to seminary, but become a pastor. Seminary was a process of walking through that. So it didn't really happen overnight in terms of me being able to be a pastor. That's it. That was a slow walking through that in terms of the idea of women in general and not me personally, yeah, that was gone a long time ago in my study of the Bible and religion. That's not even an issue in my mind. Right. People that understand women in ministry are not, that women can be in ministry, are not people that are doing some newfangled, modern, contemporary thing. People that understand women in ministry are people that have explored the Bible deeply and that have seen, like, for instance, the very first Christian preacher was Mary Magdalene. I mean, that alone, I could go on about women who have been in the Bible, given the honor of being prophets and apostles and on and on. But it should be enough that Mary Magdalene had the honor chosen by Jesus himself of being the first Christian witness, the first preacher of the gospel, the good news of Christ. That should be like, okay, done, settled. Next, let's go right. on to the next issue. That, that Because Mary Magdalene and Jesus settled it. So yeah, so that issue of women, that's a done deal. That doesn't even remotely ruffle my feathers. I and nowhere in nowhere in law, education, medicine, any other career, would we be allowed to be as blatantly sexist to say that women cannot have equal work, equal pay, equal responsibility. We have equal honor and worth and value and goodness. Nowhere in academia when I was a professor would that have ever been tolerated in the, in the colleges where I worked. That's seen as backward, antiquated patriarchal and flat out sexist. And I believe sexism is a sin as is any hierarchy of people. So that issue, that's just long gone. But in terms of me personally, could I do it? That was a process of working that out. And seminary burns out of you the sense that it's all about you. Seminary implants the sense of absolute dependence on God. And so when you go into ministry, you're like, okay, God, take over because I'll do my thing, but you got to like lead this. It's too, it's too big for just me. Right. Right. I think that's a, those are really good points. So let me ask you what I know we talked about, you know, one thing that we have to work on in our lives is how do we, uh, how do we work on our spiritual health and our wellness? Do you have any tips for how people can keep improving that area so that we do live our best lives and we feel our, you know, we feel our best, you know, spiritually? Yes, absolutely. This is my absolute passion for me. I'm just going to say what works for me, but I, I wouldn't do this if I didn't think it worked for everybody on some level. For me, what helps me is morning devotional time. I have always done about an hour of devotions every day before I encounter anybody in the world. That includes email, Facebook, social media, my friends, my husband, my kids, like anybody. I've got to figure out who I am as I am centered in God. In ministry, I had to triple that because I needed a whole lot more. It felt like the spiritual warfare was getting stronger and more demands on me from people and more dealing with people's grief and how to deal with COVID and like just all kinds of, you know, the political climate and social injustices and all kinds of things. So for me, what I do right now, and this is again, in ministry, I get up at six every day and from six to nine, I, that's my time with God. And so I do a variety of things, including going for a walk and I listen to healthy podcasts and I do meditation, prayer, gratitude journal and all that. Everybody I think has to decide for themselves what level and and how much time to give and what that would look like an hour or three hours or five minutes or 10 minutes, whatever helps you. But I heard recently that what we often do is believe that we should be either productive or entertained. And maybe COVID and this whole quarantine has really ramped that up, that we, we absolutely must take our time to be productive or we must take our time to be entertained. 
And while that's not a bad thing, I think that we are not firmly rooted unless we have other values that we are instilling in our lives besides just productivity and being entertained. So for me, it's helpful to begin with silence. I mean, I begin my mornings every day with meditation. I always have coffee with me, but (laughs) so I begin it with coffee and meditation, but that's just sitting in silence and becoming mindful. I focus on my breath. I still my thoughts and I intentionally allow God space to speak. I give God the floor rather than giving social media and my friends and all that and the news and everybody else the floor, even my own thoughts the floor. I'm putting my thoughts aside and I'm saying, God, you, you, you are going to lead this day and, and please reveal yourself. After that, I read a small portion of the Bible every day, not a ton. It doesn't need to be a ton. It's a seed. It's a, it's, you know, planting something in my brain so that like this morning, I read a chapter out of Acts. I'm working my way through Acts. And uh, generally I read a Psalm every day. I really like the Psalms. And then I read a little bit of a devotional book. I write in a gratitude journal, 20 things I'm grateful for. I do 20 because the first 10 are generally easy and the same 10 that I list all the time, like my husband and my kids and all that. The last 10 make me really have to think. And so by the time I do my devotions, go for a walk, I just have watered the soil, you know, and and I believe I gave God a chance to water the soil so that other things don't have to be so loud in my brain, everybody else's opinions and their desires and what they want me to do and be. Because in ministry, the allure is to be such a people pleaser and to be super reactive. And yet no two people are alike. They're going to want you to do different things. And you're going to be, I was, in fact, in my first years of ministry, I was bouncing around rudderless and just miserable. So for me, and I think it's helpful for everyone, but everybody has to decide their own level. If you can give God the chance to speak meaning quieting everything down, even my own emotions, my own thoughts, my own worries, and just allow wisdom beyond us to have the floor, then everything else can just come so much more easily. And so now I pastor from an overflow of that, from the joy, the peace, the groundedness that comes from that. I do not please everybody. That's fine. It would be idolatry to make that my goal. Okay. Well, I love two of the things you talked about in how you spoke about them. And I just want to talk about them for a minute longer. The first was, I love that you said, you know, we kind of want to stuff our lives with the productivity or entertainment. And you are so right. We definitely live in that culture. You know, I often speak to, we live, we literally glamorize overscheduled, overcommitted Netflix binging lifestyles. But I think many of us would be much more fulfilled and feel that contentment, right? That connection to God, if we did get quiet more and, you know, and of course many people do, but I'm just pointing out that those people that don't, I think would really benefit from some of those strat, you know, strategies in the morning or throughout the day for their lives. The other thing that you brought up was someone said this to me the other day, and it was what you were talking about. Prayer is when we want to talk to God right? When we're, you know, talking to God, tell him the things that are going on in meditation is when we want to hear from God, right? Mm -hmm. That quiet time. And so I think that's really important to remember, which is prayer is important, reading the Bible, but the time, the quiet time, like you said, where we can kind of clear our thoughts and sort of have that quiet time allows us, like you said it so well, but allows us to, to hear thoughts beyond, you know, beyond ourselves, you know, not just our own emotions and feelings. I think those are both really great points. You know, I lead my churches by telling them that we can overcomplicate our mission statements. And often churches go through, you know, a six month discerning process and then come up with a really complicated mission statement. But I I really love how when Jesus met a lawyer and the lawyer said, what are the most important laws? And Jesus just said, love God with all you got, you know, your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so to me, that's a beautiful mission statement. And I break that down as three things rather than two, because the love self part often gets forgotten if we break down as two. But when you see in scripture, the people that are really commended uh, when they are in the presence of God, they are generally quiet. So 
I believe that we love our neighbors by serving them. Mm-hmm. We love God by listening, listening to God. So like when the sisters, Mary and Martha had Jesus in their home and Martha was running around busy, she was loving her neighbor right. by serving her neighbor, Jesus. Mary was loving her God by sitting at his feet and being quiet. Right. And she was commended for it and nothing wrong with what Martha was doing, but Martha was so kind of stressed out that Martha ended up complaining. And how many times do we, do I do that? I mean, I'm a mom, I'm a, I'm a wife, I'm busy, you know, and I, I can overschedule and get so stressed out and then complain about it. Right. And Mary's just sitting there listening. And then like when Peter went up the mountain with Jesus during his transfiguration, he's turned into light and Peter wants to get busy building these shelters for Jesus and the, and Moses and Elijah up there. And he hears this voice from God. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Like, stop. (laughs) You don't need to build shelters right now. Just listen. So, yeah, I tell my folks that prayer is nice, but for every, say, one minute of prayer, do 10 of being quiet. Yeah. And if you have a prayer or a thought or a worry that comes into your mind, just just tell yourself, you know, that's for that's for 10 minutes from now. I'll think about that then. Right. I'll get I'll get back to that. But right now, just say the one prayer, God, reveal yourself. I love that. And I think you're right. I think, you know, there is an art too, and it does take practice, right? To be quiet with ourselves, whether it's because we're trying to hear from God or, or whether, you know, we're just trying to slow ourselves down, right? And it's good for our bodies, you know, whether we're trying to connect with God or we just need to, like you said, slow down and stop scheduling every second of our day, or if we're not scheduled, turning on the television or- music or something. So I love that. Well, I think that wise parenting is to not overschedule your children Yes, and and give them a lot of downtime where they're going to learn who they are. Our brains have not had an upgrade since, you know, the 1100s or 1200s where we sat and watched the sunset. Everything else has gotten upgraded and faster like technology. Our brains, our mechanics have not been upgraded. And so when we don't overschedule our children. We know that's good for them, but yet we overschedule ourselves. So how about we parent ourselves appropriately and say, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to do less. I'm going to put maybe one thing to accomplish on my calendar today instead of 75 things. Right. I'm going to get one important thing done and then I'm going to have time for relaxation. I'm going to have time for relationships. But if I accomplish this one thing, I'll be fine. I don't, I'll I'll be totally fine. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with that. So let me ask you, I know one thing that we, uh, we we want to talk about today is how can we feel happy and nurtured and loved, right? Because we take some responsibility for how, you know, how we show up in the world, how we show up in our lives. So do you have advice for how we all work on those areas so that we, you know, are a better human, if you will? Yes, I think that if there are things that are difficult emotions, find somebody to talk to find a pastor, a therapist to talk to, not just indefinitely, but to talk to with an end of working it out and finding solutions. Uh, We are in a culture where we just want to be fine. Thanks. You know, and we just don't talk about what's real. We're not, we're scared to be authentic. And so we share our highlight reels on social media and we share our highlight reels with people. So if there are things of grief, stress, anxiety, particularly with COVID, but any kind of difficult time, no shame in being authentic. Find somebody to talk to, to work through things. There are ways to heal and open up to God. You know, God's a helper. God's not just a great idea for us theologians to talk about. God's an ever-present, compassionate lover of the world who is drenching us in love. And we so often kind of want to open an umbrella and keep that love away. You know, I'm not worthy, which is just totally like self abuse, (laughs) but to open up to the love of God and to, to seek God's help in prayer for things and to seek the help of therapists, pastors, coaches, good friends, support, uh, please do that. Another thing, uh, other than, other than those things that we need to really get help for, it is a countercultural act of being a spiritual warrior to decide to be positive, to decide, no, I'm not going to give worry, self-doubt, low self-esteem. I'm not going to give that headspace. It's not, it's not earning the right to be there. So again, back to how I was raised and I write about this in my book. I was raised by a psychologist who was very interested 
in everybody's subjective opinion. And so, you know, she would say, there's no sense in arguing that you happen to prefer vanilla ice cream and I happen to prefer chocolate. Like it's, everybody's got an opinion. That's a great way to grow up because you learn to respect people for all their different perspectives and points of view. However, what I felt like when I was growing up before I knew the truth of God was that everything was about opinions. So if people liked me, I was happy. If people didn't, I was sad. Everybody had the power to define who Stephanie was because everything was about opinions. And so no opinions meant any more than anything else. When I learned what God said about me, then I said, there's an actual truth to the world, like with a capital T, that, you know, people can argue all they want to, but truth will withstand scrutiny and truth will stand. And so truth gets to win. And so if everybody thinks that I'm not worthy, or if I think I'm not worthy, that's an unfortunate opinion that's not true. Mm -hmm. And so when we know what God says about who we are, (laughs) that's like the most awesome day ever. (laughs) And when we can submit to that truth, and then we can hang around those who believe that about us, and we can distance ourselves from massive toxicity or people that believe that we're not worthy or that we're not important or whatever. That's just not true. And again, it's unfortunate that people would think that, but, but to give truth, it's rightful place, then there's reason to be happy. Yeah. I so agree. I just shared a quote on one of the last podcasts I did. It's the couple that does tons of inspirational things, Mark, Mark and Angel, I believe, but they basically talk about how we live in a culture that, what do you go? They say we're addicted to ne- negativity, right? I mean, it's literally one of our biggest issues is that people are so used to complaining and be- being negative and saying, you know, the opposite of what, you know, I think people should be doing. Because like you said, if we don't speak positively about ourselves, if we don't speak positively about the things in our lives, then how, how do we expect our life to look any different, right? If we keep exactly. repeating that narrative that things are so bad and everything's so terrible. And like you said, I have no worth, I have no value. So I think that's super important what you said. And I love that you said, you know, uh, if we understand what God, how God sees us, right. And we can sort of see the world that way, you know, through that lens. I mean, how powerful is that? I love that. It's really Yeah. There's an old Jewish story. It's not in any scripture, but it's told where somebody is complaining and saying life is so bad. And then somebody else is excited and seeing the glass half full, you know, and saying life is so good. And to the person complaining, God says, you think that's bad. I'll show you what bad is. And to the person saying life is so good, God says, you think that's good. I'll show you what good is. So the story illustrates that the more we're open to goodness, the more we're open to goodness, the more goodness will come. And so the more we, when we wake up and we intentionally try to be happy and say, I'm going to have a happy day the more we're open to that actually happening. Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. Perfect. I love how you said that. So let me ask you this. Are there any other tips? We've already talked about this a little bit, but on how do we experience a deeper faith with God? I know, you know, your book talks about that, but are there any additional tips we haven't talked about that you want to share about that? Well, in our tradition of Christianity, we believe that we can have a close relationship with God. It's kind of like the lines of the cross, you know, that that we can have this, the what is this, the vertical line, where we can have a close grounded relationship with God. And then God sends us out into the world, like the horizontal line of the cross. And so it's important to me to have a relationship with God and nurture a relationship with God, but also know that when I do that, God then says, there's so much to be done. And there's so many other people that need to know this. There's a story that I really love where Jesus knocks on the door of a woman's heart. And she cracks it open a little bit and she says, oh, Jesus, come on in. And then she sees that behind Jesus are Republicans and Democrats and people with black, brown and white skin. And there are people with all kinds of abilities and disabilities, gay and straight, transgender. There are people that are her personal enemies, the boy that broke her heart in 12th grade and the girl who said she was a friend, but really wasn't all these people. And she said, no, no, God, I will only, you know, Jesus, I only want you to come in. And Jesus says, but these people, these are my friends. Love me, love my friends. Mm -hmm. So to me, the more I'm drawn into the heart of God, the more I fall in love with Jesus and the more, and and I only fall in love with Jesus because he first fell in love with me. Like he, you know, 
he calls me beloved and then I call him beloved back, like in response. Yeah. The more I do that and I want to kind of cozy up just me and God, then he's like, okay, now that you know how loved you are, please go give it away. Please right. go share it to my other beloved children. Yeah. Because not only do some people not know the gospel and not know how much God loves people, but other people are my mother raised in really negative, harmful, abusive religions. And so, you know, (laughs) there's just so much work to be done. There's just so many people with broken hearts. Mm -hmm. And some of the brokenheartedness we cannot control or fix, like people who lose people to death and things like that. We have no control over that. But some of the brokenheartedness is just because of a lack of empathy and abusive situations and war and intolerance and things we can affect positively. So that might not answer your question about how to get closer to God, but I, for me, that's just so related. You yeah. know, I can't, I can't just be in a little silo, just me and God. I'm sent out into the world regularly because that's who God cares about all yeah. of creation. No, I love it because I do agree. Of course, at the end of the day, it is about, right. Just being that connection to people for, you know, that Jesus is about love and hope. Right. And of course, I mean, you know, the resurrection, but that is our purpose, right? If you're, if you're a Christian is that we're supposed to, to serve the world that way. And so I right, think that's a really good story that you shared or example. Yeah, I, I think that the, that when we are quiet, when we are silent and give, give God a chance to speak, I think that God reveals to each of us the thing to do. Yeah. You know, so it's not about us sitting and making priorities and saying just, you know, what do I want to do with my life and how do I want to move forward? And, and just from like my own best thoughts, but giving God a chance to say, okay, Kristen or Stephanie, here's your task. And here's who I want you to minister to. And a lot of that ministry is just by letting our own light shine, just being authentic, being who we are, because all of us, we're all influenced and affected by who we see around us in the world. We're all following somebody. We're either following a rock star or following a politician or following a guru. We're all following someone. So, I mean, obviously at the end of the day, I want people to follow God, not me. But in the meantime, I can let a light shine as an example of someone who really believes in the goodness and the love and the power of God. Absolutely. And I often have said, you know, if people wonder why so many people have left the church or haven't felt comfortable at the church, it's because instead of feeling welcome and loved no matter what, it's because instead they feel judged and as if, you know, there's a chill in some of those pews and chairs. And and it's an unfortunate thing because that's not the intent, but yet sometimes churches have gone to that place, or I should say people in the churches, not the, not the church itself. But so, yeah, I think you're right about that. And I have an interesting question for you. And I don't know if you'll have an answer to this, but I love that Mark Batterson says, I think it's in chase the lion, but I could be wrong. He says your favorite scripture will become the scripture for your life. And I just wonder, do you have a favorite scripture that sort of aligns with your life or no? Yes, I do. And and again, it doesn't feel like it's one I've chosen. It right. feels like it's been put on me. Yes. And, and this is a very popular one. A lot of people love it. It's be still and know that I'm God. I believe, I think that's Psalm 4610. I should actually know the notation, but it's, yeah, be still and know that I'm God. Because my parents both had PhDs and they were very into education, productivity, working, achieving. And so I grew up feeling like I needed to hustle, you know, get really busy, get really good grades, always achieve. And then when I'm done, achieve more. (laughs) And it's never enough to keep going, you know, and always, if I'm not working, at least in my mind, I should be analyzing, I should be thinking, I should be solving, I should be, you know, doing. And God tells me, no, those aren't my values. You, You need to be still and don't think that your worth is in productivity. Right. And, you know, I mean, and you would think, you know, well, if you're a pastor, you've, you know, achieved something like I, you know, I went through school and and I have this career. It never stops. If you're thinking your worth is in something, then it's, I need a bigger church. I need to be bishop. I need to be a speaker of a, you know, a million person stadium. I need to have, you know, all these accolades. It, it never stops. And it's, again, it's idolatry. I believe that that sin at the bottom of every sin is idolatry. Mm-hmm. It's a focus on something that we think is a God substitute that seems easier, easier than actually following the actual God. And so if our focus is on achievement and busy, being busy, or even being mentally busy, uh, that's idolatry. 
because it just goes on the, it goes on a path. That's not the path of love, right? It's not the path of contentment. It's not the path of relationship. It's not the path of peace. It's not the path of joy. And so God tells me to be still in my body, in my mind. And I'm still, I mean, when I take the time to meditate and I call that meditating, just being still just listening to God, I do get ideas of what to do. So it's not like I'm just going to sit on the couch and watch television and eat bonbons all day long. It's not like I'm not going to be productive. I'm actually more productive, but, but I'm not trying to run around, you know, like on a hamster wheel, just endlessly. I, my husband and I are going away for a couple of days uh, vacation. Uh Um, That's like a Sabbath for us. And so those kinds of being still those moments, whether it's, meditating in the morning, whether it's having a Sabbath, going to church just to sit and be, you know, just to absorb the word of God. That's so meaningful to me. It keeps me focused. It keeps me realizing who's God and what I need and what I don't need. Well, yeah. And what I love about that scripture, you know, you you illustrated so well, while it was why it's so important to you, but I think it also shows why you can be, you can serve as a pastor so well, because you have to get still right to hear God and to you're going to be a better pastor, you know, better servant if you do slow down and you take the time to, you know, actually then do the work that needs to get done or you feel called to do in that given day or or week. So, I love that. Right. And I'm certainly not perfect at this. There are times where I'm definitely imbalanced, off-center, not still like, you know, what we call Holy Week before Easter, where we're running around doing all these services, you know, or I have like five funerals in a row or, you know, one of those times where ministry is crazy and I'm just super busy. It's not like I'm perfect at this. It's just that I know the solution, you know, that when I can, I need to take a vacation or take time, you know, off like just a day, a Sabbath. I mean, some pastors can get into the habit of being there for everybody all the time with no boundaries. Mm -hmm. And it is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for burnout and overwhelm. Yeah. And so for churches to know this and to insist that their pastors, number one, have two days off a week, like everybody else, and it's not going to be Sunday. So some two days, uh, and then also to take their vacation time and to take their continuing education time. And then many churches also have sabbaticals after seven years where you have a couple of months to renew and recharge those things, you know, to, for churches to support a, a pastor having family time, right? Because they're not going to have it in traditional times during holidays. They're not going to have it on weekends. They're not going to have it in the evenings sometimes. So whenever they can have family time to, for a church to support that. And I have a what they call a council in my church in other denominations, they call it a session. It means like other leaders around the pastor that support them. Mm-hmm. That's incredibly important. Yeah. for that be still time. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that is so important. You know, like you said, whether you're a pastor or you're a mom or whatever yes. your role is in the world, Dang. it's yes. easy to get, you know, not to recharge, not have time to recharge and things. So like you pointed out, having boundaries and having clear work, work hours or times. And I understand for a pastor, that's not always the case, but to your point, you know, you're going to get pulled out other times. So there has to be some time to recharge and some yes. time to regroup and be healthy, really. Yes. And I liked how you talked about being a mom. That's huge because you're always on call. There's always something going on. And so again, if you're in a church community or religious community for people to know that and to step in and help out, uh, we have a young mom in our congregation right now that has two very small children. And of course, during COVID, lots of moms are stressed out with, you know, trying to homeschool and things that they've never done before. So for churches to step in and say, you know, how can we support you? Because people are not machines. We need to rest. We need to recharge. We need to have fun. We need to play. We need all those things to to get us healthy, to keep us healthy. Yeah, I so agree. So let me ask you, before we find out how people can find you online to, to learn more, are there any resources or books that you recommend, you know, beyond the Bible that you that have been helpful maybe for somebody in your congregation or other things like that? Well, yes. I mean I'm actually thinking about my book right now. Absolutely. We can definitely share that again. What's that? I'm sorry. I said, absolutely. You can surely share that again. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll talk, yeah, I'll talk about why I wrote that in, in a minute, but um, definitely the Bible. And I have a really good uh, devotional Bible that I like to read through uh, that has very good devotions in it. There's lots of other devotional books. I'm, I'm reading one right now called The Confident Woman by Joyce Meyer. Mm-hmm. You know, we all know her. She's tried and true uh, person. 
I like to read about the religions of the world. I love a book called Houston. It's by Houston Smith called the world's religions to help me understand the people around me, my neighbors around me to, to not feel afraid of, mm-hmm. of folks because those who are truly following the religions of the world, the major ones are peace loving people. They're not the ones that hijack religion for horrible ends. So, so I really like uh, that. Gosh, off the top of my head, I'm just thinking lots of different theological books, but there's not like one particular one that comes to mind. It just depends on what you're, what you're interested in. You know, uh, there's different ones for ethics, different ones for theology. Gordon Lathrop is a really great author. He wrote a series of books called Holy Things, Holy People. Yeah, I'm just, I'm kind of drawing sure. a blank. Yeah, <laughs> so those, are all, those are all great. So thank you. Thanks. So tell us Thanks. how can people connect with you online if they'd like to learn more? Okay. Well, I am uh, at stephanielape.com. So that's my website. And then uh, from there, you can click a link to my YouTube channel. So the YouTube channel isn't just through me. It's through my church, which is Crossing Crown Lutheran Church in Rancho Cucamonga, California. So you can click the link on my website and see lots of different videos. We record services. You can hear sermons, but I also do little short videos frequently called Spirit and Soul. So you can hear lots of talks about that. I'm on Facebook under Pastor Stephanie Lape. So there's that. And then my book that I wrote beckoned. It's it's a really easy, accessible book. It's not like heavy theological jargon, but it's my spiritual journey through being born into a legacy of really wounding religion, shame-based religion, and then finding my way into and out of a lot of different denominations. But I don't just write it as a memoir for me because I could write that in a personal journal. I write it as a template for other people to read and then think, yeah, what was I given as a gift, good or bad from my family? How do I want to either embrace that or find something better now? Uh, Where have I found God weaving me into and out of different places? How have I been beckoned? Because the road is never straight. God beckons us always on a winding road, half of which or more that we did not anticipate. Mm -hmm. And so what I've heard from readers of the book is that it's like a curriculum, like they're really using it to discover and to think deeply, where has God called me? And I've written discussion questions. I can email them to you if you'd like. I have 75 discussion questions for or reflection questions. If people are reading this to then look at the questions and there's, there's 15 chapters. So there's five per chapter to think, how does this apply to me? Right. Do I agree with this? Do I not agree? Do I resonate? Do I not resonate? As an educator, I'm never offended if people don't resonate. Like I just, I just want it to be food for thought. So, um, so hopefully that can be helpful for people to use, to think deeply about their own lives and their own faith journey. I I do. And I actually think that that's a topic that's not talked about enough because uh, much like you, I, you know, in college, some of the classes I took were Christianity and world religion classes And, you know, I even thought, oh, am I supposed to do more with this? But, uh, you know, the point was, is I, and I read lots of those kind of books. Your book is I've changed denominations, right? Or what, where I practice my faith. And I have friends that will a little bit judge me or be like, well, you're kind of an interesting one, you know, and they'll make little comments because their family guilts them that they need to stay or practice faith in a certain way. And I think that that's a topic that, doesn't come up enough that it's normal and it's okay that we change where we practice our faith because maybe we feel called to be somewhere else to serve, Exactly. you know, but I think too many people don't see that as that's normal or it should be normal and we should keep trying to grow. And that might mean we have to change where we're at. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. too many people think it's the other way. You know, if you grow up, you know, whatever it is, Protestant or Baptist or Catholic, you know, that that's where you have to stay, but that's not necessarily the case. So I think that's actually really helpful to people. Thanks. And yeah, I mean, I I, I can kind of see it a couple of ways. I mean, as a pastor, I always grieve when people want to leave my church. You know, I love when people come. I don't love when people go. Right. Because I think, well, how can we ever be ecumenical and have relationships with our Buddhist and Hindu and Muslim brothers and sisters in this world if we can't even get along ourselves and be all together in one family? and learn to helpfully talk about what we might disagree about. I mean, even when we sit at a Thanksgiving table with our own family, no two of us thinks identically. Mm -hmm. So if we can say, all right, we're not all the same and let's come together around the cross. Right. I get it. We might be of different political persuasions, different, you know, backgrounds, different interests, different, whatever. 
we can all come together. So as a pastor, I want everybody to get along. I mean, and that's right. totally unrealistic, but that's truly, if I'm going to be honest, what I want, <laughs> one big happy family. But as a Christian, I could, I couldn't stay when I felt that the spirit was calling me to learn something somewhere else. Right. So my first jump into Christianity was in the Presbyterian church. I got bored with that because no fault of the Presbyterians, but for me, when I was in college and all the stuff was coming at me academically, I felt like the Presbyterian church, like I knew what they were about. Like I knew what they were preaching about. Like I, right. I just thought, I understand this, that God loves me. Okay. But what else, you know? So I wanted to figure out something else. And so when I found the Catholic church, I learned more about ritual and sacraments and liturgy and history and the saints. And just, it was richer to me in terms of learning. Right. But then I felt for other reasons that I get much more into in, in my book, I needed to leave that. So I went into the non-denominational world and then at one, and that was very much serving my family. Then at one point I needed to leave that. And if somebody from the outside judged me as being like wrong or bad, I'd be like, well, you're free to have your opinion. But as they say, when God tells me where to go, it's not a conference call, right? I love it. You're not hearing it. You're hearing your call, right? God's telling me. Yep. <laughs> go explore something else, like going to another country. Right. So people can disagree all they want to. That's fine. But right. we have enough to worry about, about our own lives. We got way too much time on our hands if we're playing judge and jury about what everybody else should be doing. Absolutely. I a hundred percent agree. So, oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for such a rich and meaningful conversation. I appreciate that. And uh, we'll definitely put all your information, how to reach out to you on the uh, website for this episode. Thank you so much, Kristen. It's really nice to be here and God bless you and your podcast and all that you're doing in your ministry. Thank you. You too. As I think about my conversation I had today with Stephanie, I wanted to share some words that kind of spoke to me today by by Bob Goff, who says, every day God invites us on the same kind of adventure. It's not a trip where he sends us a rigid itinerary. He simply invites us. God asks what it is he's made us to love, what it is that captures our attention what feeds that deep, indescribable need of our souls to experience the richness of the world he made. And then leaning over us, he whispers, let's go do that together. And I would just leave you with the verse from John 4, 8, which says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And if you're ready to go after your dreams and define life on your terms, head on over to kristenfitch.com and download the free No Limits workbook to help you look at different ideas in front of you and how you might create, scale, and monetize those ideas. So you can start going after your dreams today. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have ideas for the show or guests that you'd like to recommend, I'd love to hear from you. So DM me on Instagram at Kristen Fitch, or you can email me from the website. Thanks so much. And thanks again for listening in. Until next time, have a great week.